So welcome to lecture eight of contract law. At least I think it's lecture eight. I'll be honest, I'm starting to lose count myself a bit. In this particular lecture, we're going to move away from the basic agreement rules and start talking about some other conditions that need to be satisfied in order for a legally binding contract to come into existence. So hopefully you will recall from lecture two, the basic rule of contract law states roughly that in order for there to be a binding legal contract, there must be an offer, there must be acceptance, there must be consideration, there must be intention to create legal relations, and there must be compliance with any necessary formalities. Now we've focused just on the first two conditions so far, and now we're going to focus on the third condition, the consideration condition. So what is consideration? To answer that question, we're going to really have to get into a topic which I had mentioned earlier, or a concept or idea that I'd mentioned earlier on, which is that although all contracts are agreements, not all agreements are contracts. So what kinds of agreements are singled out as constituting legally binding contracts? And one thing that singles out legally binding contracts from other kinds of agreements is consideration. So to put it very basically and simply, consideration is something of value that is given in exchange for a promise. So if I am promising to build you a house, you must give me something of value in return. Most obviously, of course, money for the building of the house. Now, the concept of consideration in contract law is a little bit broader than just money, even though money is the most obvious type of consideration. And there is a nice definition or statement of what consideration is in the eyes of the law in an old English case called Curry versus Misa. So Lord Justice Lush, in this case, says the following. He says that a valuable consideration in the sense of the law must consist either in some right, interest, profit, or benefit accruing to the one party, or some forbearance, detriment, loss, or responsibility given, suffered, or undertaken by the other. So if we apply that definition to the scenario where I am building your house in exchange for some money, well, I'm the party that is taking on the responsibility of building your house, and I am going to suffer a loss in time and resources to build you the house, and you are going to confer a benefit on me in return, namely by providing me with this money. I mean, you can also look at it in the sense that we're both providing each other with a mutual benefit. I'm building the house for you, so you get the benefit of the house, and you're giving me the money, I get the benefit of the money. And we're also both disadvantaged, in a sense, in the process. We both suffer some kind of detriment, I get the loss of time and resources that goes into building the house, and you get the loss of the money. So there's this mutual exchange of both benefits and detriments in that case. So if we could formulate all of this into a rule, into a condition that needs to be satisfied in order for there to be a contract, we could say that the following summarizes the consideration rule. In order for there to be a binding legal contract, there must be some consideration, where consideration is something of value given or taken in exchange for something else of value, where value is often understood in terms of some benefit or detriment to both parties. Now, there are four qualifications or modifications to this rule of consideration that I want to consider in these lectures. And they are as follows. That consideration must be sufficient, but it need not be adequate. That consideration must move from the promisee 
that consideration must not be past, and finally, that consideration must not be in fulfillment of an existing legal duty, at least sort of not in fulfillment of an existing legal duty. So what I'll try to do is to cover the first three of these qualifications of the rule in this lecture, and then I'll consider the last one, which is by far and away the most important and complicated one, in a separate lecture. Indeed, so complicated is that last condition that we may end up splitting it across a couple of lectures. So let's look at the first of those qualifications, this claim that consideration must be sufficient, but it need not be adequate. Now, that might strike you as an odd formulation because in everyday speech, we sometimes use the terms sufficient and adequate synonymously as interchangeable concepts or ideas. But at least for the purposes of the consideration rule, we consider them as being distinct concepts or ideas. So what does this mean? So if I could translate this into more ordinary English, what I would say is that as long as there is some kind of value exchanged, and there's sufficient value, the courts won't interfere with a contract by asking whether it was a fair value, whether it was adequate. So in other words, if I persuade you to sell me your car for one euro, and there doesn't seem to be any duress or coercion involved in my securing that agreement, and those are concerns that we'll come back to later in the year, the court isn't going to second-guess our freedom and autonomy to form our own contract, as long as I have provided something of value in exchange for the car, that will be enough to constitute a legally binding agreement. So there's a bunch of cases on this idea, this point, that are worth exploring. The first case I just want to discuss is Thomas versus Thomas, which is an 1842 English case. And so the facts of this case are that Mr. Thomas died, and on the morning that he had died, he expressed the wish that his wife be allowed to live in his house after his death. Now, the executors of his will decided to allow the wife to live in his house after his death, provided that she paid a rent of one pound per annum, which was a fairly small nominal rent. Later on, however, a dispute arose, and they attempted to dispossess her of the property, and one of the things that they claimed when trying to do so was that there was a lack of consideration provided for the rent, for the right to stay in the house. But the court contradicted them and found in favor of the wife and said that one pound was sufficient consideration for staying in the property, even if it wasn't the equivalent to the going market rate for rent of a property of that kind. So this is the perfect classic illustration of the rule that consideration must be sufficient, but it need not be adequate. There's also some Irish examples on this point, and one that's commonly cited in the textbooks is the fact that the Irish Steel Corporation was sold for one pound back in 1996 for a consortium, and that was deemed to be a legally valid deal or contract that was ultimately supported as well by, by statute. So cases where the consideration is monetary in nature tend not to raise any real complexities when it comes to the application of this sufficiency-adequacy rule. Although, as I mentioned earlier when I was describing the case between yourself and your friend for purchasing the car for one euro, one thing the courts will be concerned about when they see an exchange at a very low value is whether there was some kind of undue influence or coercion involved in finalizing the contract. And that might negate the, the existence of a legally binding contract. But as I say, those are concerns that we'll come back to later in the year.
The real challenge for this sufficiency and adequacy rule, however, comes when the consideration is not monetary in nature. And courts have to try and figure out whether a non-monetary consideration is sufficient in the eyes of the law. So just a a few cases on this point. One famous case that's often cited is O'Neill versus Murphy. It's a 1936 Northern Irish case. It's partly cited because the facts are somewhat amusing. So here we have a builder who agrees to do some work for a nearby parish, and he does so in return for prayers being said in his favor. Now, a dispute later arose, and the court held that there was no binding legal contract because prayers were not sufficient consideration. So what the court said here, and this is a quote from the judgment, was that the courts will not interfere with the exercise of free will and judgment of the parties, but it is necessary that the consideration be sufficient in law. A mere voluntary courtesy will not suffice. So this uh, seems to suggest that doing certain kinds of action that are a courtesy to another party will not suffice as consideration. There is then the English case of Ward v. Byam, which seems to complicate the picture somewhat, and the facts here may be slightly less amusing. So what we have is a mother, who's the plaintiff in this case, who gives birth to a child out of wedlock. So back in the 50s in England, if you were born out of wedlock, you were deemed in the eyes of the law illegitimate, and that had certain consequences in terms of your rights to property and protection from your official parents, or sorry, let me put that another way, your biological parents. If you weren't, if they weren't your legal parents, you were denied certain rights and entitlements. So illegitimacy is a concept that has now gone by the wayside when it comes to the birth of children. But at the time that this case was decided, it was an important legal background. So what happened here was that the defendant, who was the father of the child in question, agreed to pay the mother one pound a week if she cared for the child and made sure that the child was happy. So the plaintiff then later got married, and the defendant stopped paying the money once she got married. The plaintiff then brought a case trying to enforce the contract, and the defendant rejected this or objected to this on the grounds that there was no valid consideration supplied in return for his payment of one pound a week. Because caring for the child and ensuring that the child was happy is not a sufficient consideration. Now, part of this case turns on the fact of whether a mother has a pre-existing legal duty to care for her child. And we'll look at the intersection between the rules and consideration and pre-existing legal duties in a subsequent lecture. But one of the issues that also arose here was then the question of sufficiency. Was making the child happy, promising to make the child happy, a sufficient consideration? And two of the three judges in the English Court of Appeal held that this was sufficient consideration, because ensuring that a child was well looked after and was happy was of value and could be deemed to be consideration in the eyes of the law. Now, we're going to come back to Ward v. Bion later on, because in this particular case, Lord Justice Denning gave a different judgment. He's the third judge of the English Court of Appeal here, and we're going to consider his rationale, because it has some interesting repercussions for subsequent developments in the law of consideration. So another issue that's arisen in the case law in relation to the sufficiency of consideration has to do with promotions, promotional schemes run by companies, and whether exchanging tokens like the wrappers or packaging of a product in return for something else can be sufficient consideration. 
So think back here actually to the whole Pepsi points saga with Leonard v. PepsiCo. Are you know the rings of cans of Pepsi, which entitled you to certain points, are they sufficient consideration for another item? Interesting question. And this was a question that was decided in the case of Chapel & Co. versus Nestle, Nestle Co. in 1960 in the UK. And this is one of the more influential judgments in relation to what counts as consideration, as sufficient consideration in the eyes of the law. So the facts of the case are as follows. Nestle were running a promotional scheme whereby you could purchase records, music records, from them for a certain sum of money, one shilling and six pence, plus three wrappers from bars of their chocolate. Now, Chapel and Co. own the copyrights on the music records that Nestle and Co. are providing to customers through this promotional scheme, and they were demanding royalty payments from Nestle. And under statute, they were entitled to royalty payments that were a certain percentage of the ordinary retail price. Now, Nestle agreed to pay them royalties, but they only agreed to pay them royalties on a percentage of the one shilling and six pence that people paid in addition to the wrappers. But Chaplin Co. objected to this on the grounds that the value of the three wrappers, the three bars of chocolate, also should be factored into the royalty calculation. So, look, a dispute arose as a result of all this. Chapel tried to stop the promotional scheme, holding that Nestle were in violation of copyright law. And the issue that eventually came up for the court to decide was whether the wrappers, the bars of chocolate, the wrappers from the bars of chocolate, should be counted as part of the consideration in the contract between Nestle and its customers. Nestle obviously tried to argue that the wrappers shouldn't count as part of the consideration because they had no value, but they were defeated in the House of Lords. So a 3-2 majority of the House of Lords held that the wrappers on the bars of chocolate were part of the consideration in the contract. And the reasoning of the court is somewhat interesting here. Lord Justice Reed in the decision states that the requirement that the wrappers should be sent was of great importance to Nestle and Co. There would have been no point in their simply offering records for one shilling and sixpence each. So what's he saying there? What he's saying is that the whole point of the promotional scheme was to encourage people to purchase bars of chocolate and the wrappers were essentially a proof of purchase of the bars of chocolate so while we might think that the wrappers themselves once the chocolate is gone is value are valueless they did have some value to nestle as a proof of purchase and so they were sufficient for consideration in the eyes of the law what about other kinds of promotional scheme well there is a famous irish case actually on this point which is the so-called one millionth passenger case. So this is the case of O'Keefe versus Ryanair Holdings, or just Ryanair for you and I. So O'Keefe here purchased a ticket on a Ryanair flight. Upon arrival at the airport, she was told that she might actually be the one millionth customer of Ryanair. And so she was then asked if she would participate in a series of publicity exercises to mark the occasion. She agreed and the company told her that she would receive unlimited travel for herself and a chosen nominee for life in return. Later on, when I think the enormity of this hit Ryanair as to what this actually meant over the long term, they tried to limit the deal. She sued to enforce the deal, and Ryanair argued that she could not do so because their offer of unlimited travel was just a gift it wasn't uh, something that would provide the basis for a legally binding contract because she didn't provide any consideration in return for this gift. 
She argued, contrary to that, that she had in fact provided valuable consideration. She was their one millionth customer and she participated in a series of promotional activities for them. And that was sufficient for there to be a binding legal agreement. And the court agreed with her. So Justice Kelly said the following. In my view, there was an agreement between the parties that, in consideration of the plaintiff consenting to participate in the publicity sought by the defendant, she would be eligible for nomination as its millionth passenger. In return, she was entitled to unlimited travel on Ryanair routes for herself and another for the rest of her life. Under the doctrine of consideration, a promise has no contractual force unless some value has been given for it. The court is not concerned with the adequacy of value. The consideration to support a contract, however, must be real. That is to say, it must be capable of estimation in terms of value. Certainly, the participation of the plaintiff in the publicity generated on the day in question was regarded as being of value by the defendant, and I see no reason why the law should not regard it as being of sufficient value. The surrender by the plaintiff of her anonymity and privacy and her active participation in the generation of the publicity that was created on the day in question, in my view, amounted to a real consideration and is sufficient to support a valid contract. So that's the end of the quote from Justice Kelly, and I think that is a good summation of the doctrine about sufficiency and adequacy in law, and also a pretty interesting Irish case on this point. So let's move on then to the second qualification to the rule, namely that consideration must move from the promisee. Now this is a slightly obscure way of phrasing it, and might cause confusion. So in law, we talk about one party being the promisor, that's the person who makes the promise, and the other party being the promisee, the person to whom the promise is made. But it's actually a little bit artificial to assume that these are distinct people. So in in the typical contract, you have a scenario where one party promises to do one thing, supply a good or service, and another party promises to do another thing, pay money in return for that good or service. And in a sense, they are both promisors and promisees. So the phrasing of this qualification of the consideration rule may be apt to confuse, but the important thing from your perspective is that what it means is essentially that third parties to a contract, people who are not part of the original agreement to the contract, cannot provide consideration on the part of another person who is party to the contract. So let's imagine a scenario here. Let's suppose again that I am selling my car to you, So I promise to give you my car, I'm the promisor here for purposes of illustration, and you don't promise to give me anything in return. Instead, your father promises to pay me a thousand euro in return for the car. Well, in that scenario, there is no binding contract between me and you, because you haven't provided any consideration in return for my promise. Instead, it is actually your father who has provided the consideration. And so that's the point that's captured by this idea that the consideration must move from the promisee. So the alleged other party to a contractual agreement must be providing something in return for that agreement. It can't be another person who's providing something in return. So there are, again, several cases illustrating this point. The most famous of them is a case called Tweddle v. Atkinson. It's an 1861 English case. And the facts of the case are that William Tweddle was going to marry the daughter of William Guy. Tweddle's father, John Tweddle, agreed agreed with William Guy that they would both pay William Tweddle, the son, 
£200 and £100, essentially just to set him up for this marriage. Now, William Guy, the father of the daughter-in-law, the wife in this case, died before he paid his share of the money, and the executors of William Guy's estate refused to pay out the money to William Tweddle. William Tweddle sued, but when he brought the case to court, his claim was no good because he hadn't provided any consideration for the deal. This was a contract concluded between the parents, not the parent, William Guy, and his son-in-law. So again, that's a classic illustration of this scenario. Another case that kind of illustrates this point is McCubrey v. Thompson, which is an 1868 case. So in this case, you have one party, who we will call AJ, or AG rather, who wanted to transfer his land and goods to McCubrey and Thompson. And the total value of these lands was £196. Now, Thompson wanted all of the land, and so he reached an agreement with AG and McCubrey that he, Thompson, would receive everything, all the lands, if he paid £98, half the price of the land, to McCubrey. Now, Thompson ended up defaulting on the payment. He didn't pay the money to McCubrey, and McCubrey sued. But it was held that McCubrey could not sue because no consideration had moved from him. He conferred no benefit and incurred no loss. So just to be clear what's happening here, it's AG AG owns the land. He wants to transfer the land to two other people. The total value of that is £196. One of the other two people, Thompson, decides that he wants all of it, and reached an agreement that McCubrey would give him his share of the land if he paid McCubrey £98. And this is all before AG transfers the land to anyone. So AG transfers the land to Thompson, he defaults on the payment, McCubrey sues, but McCubrey can't sue because he's actually not party to a contract here. There's no consideration really provided from him because he didn't get the land. It was only He only got legal entitlement to the land, or only would have got legal entitlement to the land after it, the contract had been formed between himself and AJ, AG, and that didn't happen in this case. So the scenario in McCubrey v. Thompson is a little bit complex, but it should be contrasted with a second case, a follow-up case, it's an Irish case, called Barry v. Barry. So in Barry v. Barry, which is an 1891 decision, you have a father whose will states that the defendant was to receive the entirety of the family farm if he agreed to pay certain legacies to his siblings. It also stated that if he failed to pay these legacies, they would be entitled to be paid from the land, through sale of the land, or rent, or some other income that could be generated from the land. So upon the father's death, the defendant agreed with the executors of the father's will that he would be personally liable to pay the legacies to his siblings, And as a result, the siblings agreed to renounce their rights to be paid from the land under the will. So in a sense, what the defendant is doing in this case is he's modifying the terms of the father's will and saying, look, you aren't entitled to be paid from the land, but I agree to personally guarantee to pay you the legacies. So later on, the defendant defaults on these payments, and one of the siblings sued, arguing that he was appropriately enough, it seems, personally liable for the legacies. And the court held that, despite this seeming on the face of it to be maybe a little bit like Tweddle v. Atkinson or McCubrey v. Thompson, there was, in fact, a valid contract here. And the key difference was that the father's will had been finalized, 
and the siblings were legally entitled to legacies under the terms of that will, so the deal reached when the father died between the defendant and the executors of the father's estate modified their rights, so they incurred a detriment. So this is the key difference between this case and McCubrey v. Thompson, which is that in McCubrey v. Thompson, McCubrey never had a right to the property in the first place, whereas the siblings in this case did have a right under the will that they did give up. So that brings us then to the third qualification, and this is the last thing I wanted to discuss today, which is that consideration must not be passed. Now this is actually a straightforward enough idea, so let's just imagine a hypothetical set of facts. Suppose I spend all morning hunting down a very rare case report, legal case report for you, and you have been looking for it, and I know that you've been looking for it. I then give you the report on Monday afternoon, and you say, oh, that's great, thanks for this, I promise to buy you lunch for doing so. In that scenario, I would not have an enforceable contract against you, because the consideration that I provided, the thing that I did, search down the rare case report for you, was in the past, was prior to your promise to pay for my lunch. So we reached an agreement after the fact, after I had done my bit of the promise. Now that hypothetical set of facts makes this rule very clear and straightforward, but you know problems, as always, can arise in practice. So let's just run through a few of those problems by looking at some of the classic cases on this issue. And many of these cases are pretty old, and in fact one of them is very old, and will for a time be possibly one of the oldest cases that you'll look at. So the first case I want to talk about is a case called Roscorla v. Thomas, which is an 1842 case. So the facts of the case are that Roscorla purchased a horse from Thomas for £30, and then after the sale was complete, Thomas gave Roscorla an oral warranty or claim or representation to the effect that the horse was sound and free from vice, whatever that means. Now it turned out that the horse was not really sound and free from vice because it was prone to biting people, which seemed contrary to this oral warranty. So Roscorla tried to sue for breach of warranty, but he was not allowed to do so because Thomas's oral promise came after he had paid for the horse, so after the contract had been completed. Now, you may wonder a little bit what a warranty is, and some of you will have come across the concept before, but actually in law, in contract law, a warranty can mean something other than what you might think it means. So we will discuss that later when we're looking at terms of a contract. It doesn't really matter for present purposes. For present purposes, it's straightforward enough that Thomas's promise about the horse being free from vice came after the payment of the money, so after the contract was complete. Subsequent case, or sorry, a previous case actually, Eastwood v. Kenyon. Interesting facts here, where you have a man called John Sutcliffe who dies and he leaves his estate to his daughter, Sarah. Eastwood was Sarah's guardian until she came of age, until she turned 18. Sutcliffe hadn't left enough money to pay for Sarah's education. And so Eastwood borrowed money from a Mr. Blackburn to pay for her education and care. Once she came of age, and I actually just need to issue a correction here, I think I said she came of age at at 18, that wasn't true at the time, it was 21 at the time. So after she came of age, she promised that she would pay the money back to Mr. Eastwood, since he had borrowed money at her expense to pay for her education and care, she promised that she'd pay it back to him. 
Now, she did pay back some of the money, but then she got married, and unfortunately, the sad state of affairs for women at the time was that once they got married, all their property became the entitlement of their husbands. So suddenly this promise to pay back the money transferred to the husband, and the husband promised that he would pay the money back to Eastwood, but he never did so. Eastwood then tried to enforce Sarah's original promise, and the court found against him, using this principle that the consideration must not be passed. And so the argument was that the consideration provided by Eastwood, paying for Sarah's education and care, came long before Mr. Kenyon, who was Sarah's husband, made the promise to pay the money back to Eastwood. There's an Irish case on this point as well. There's a case called Provincial Bank of Ireland versus O'Donnell, a 1932 Irish case. And the facts there are that the defendant, O'Donnell, provided security for her husband's overdraft in a deed. She said she was providing security for advances that had previously been made or might be made afterward. When the husband defaulted on the loan, the bank tried to sue, and the court held that the consideration provided by the bank was either in the past or was entirely illusory or aspirational. So the security she provided, which was her consideration, was in return for money that the bank had advanced to the husband in the past or might advance to him in the future. Now, those cases all seem to speak with one voice and suggest that it is really true that consideration must not be passed. But sometimes courts are willing to take a more holistic view of the facts of a case and infer from those facts that even though on the face of it it might seem that the consideration was provided in the past, there was all the way along an unexpected promise to pay money to somebody in return for doing something. And the most famous case that illustrates this point is a very old English case called Lampley versus Braithwaite, which is a 1615 decision. And the facts have all the kind of eccentricities you might expect from that era of history. So what happened here is that Braithwaite had killed somebody. And he had asked Lampley to secure a royal pardon for him. So Lampley went off then to considerable expense and effort to do exactly that. He succeeded. And when he had succeeded, Braithwaite promised to pay him £100, which is a lot of money back in 1615, for his efforts. So you can see the problem here immediately, which is that... All of Lampley's efforts to secure the pardon came prior to the promise. Now, Braithwaite never paid the money, and Lampley sued him. And the court found in this case that there was, in fact, a valid legal contract because there was an implied agreement all the way along that Braithwaite would pay a fee if Lampley's efforts were successful. So then fast forward in time to a much more recent case, relatively speaking, although still, you know, four decades ago, for, called Pow On versus Lao Yu Long. It's a 1980 English case, appeals court decision. The facts actually emanate from Hong Kong. And it's a very famous and important contract law case, which we will come across a couple of times throughout this course, and particularly in relation to rules on duress and undue influence. And the, the facts of the case are factually complex, and I don't want to go into them right now, but the gist of it is that you have two companies who are trying to ex- arrange the exchange of a building in Hong Kong between them, but they do this not by selling the building directly, they do so by selling shares in the companies. 
because the companies own the building. So by transferring shares in the companies, you're in effect transferring ownership of the building. Now, the reason I'm mentioning this case at this moment in time is because in this case, Lord Scarman identified three conditions that must be met if the courts are to overlook the typical rule against consideration provided in the past and to follow this Lamplay versus Braithwaite approach. So what he says, and I'm going to quote directly from him here, is that their lordships agree that the mere existence or recital of a prior request is not sufficient in itself to convert what is prima facie past consideration into sufficient consideration. It is only the first of three necessary preconditions. So what are these preconditions then? Well, Lord Justice Scarman goes on in the decision to say that First, the act must have been done at the promissor's request. The parties must have understood that the act was to be remunerated, either by payment or the conferment of some other benefit. And the payment or conferment of a benefit must have been legally enforceable had it been promised in advance. So the three conditions there. The original act must have been performed at the request of the promissor. It must have been clearly understood by both parties throughout that there would be some kind of payment in return for doing the act, and that promise must have been one which would have been legally enforceable had it arisen prior to all of these events occurring. Okay, so that brings us to the end of this first lecture on consideration. Just to quickly recap, consideration in the eyes of the law is some benefit or detriment incurred upon both sides of the contract in exchange for the promises that are being committed to by the parties. Now, the most typical kind of consideration in practice and in law is a monetary consideration, but there are other kinds of consideration too. And we've just discussed then three important qualifications or developments on that rule about consideration, namely that consideration must be sufficient, but it need not be adequate. Consideration must move from the promisee, and consideration must not be passed. In the next lecture, we're going to move on from this and discuss what is possibly one of the trickiest areas of law, which is the rule in relation to consideration and pre-existing legal duties.